I moved from Germany to the US for college when I was 20 years old. It was my great adventure. And I always thought I was the first person in my family to visit the US, let alone live here. My parents hadn't been before I moved here and neither had my grandparents, or so I thought. I mentioned this once to Tante Gerdi, my aunt Gerdi, my grandmother's younger sister, and she said, oh, oh, but that's not true. Uncle Kurt spent 11 months in Nebraska. Uncle Kurt was her husband and had been my grandfather's best friend since they were young. He collected minerals, which he even let me play with very carefully when I was growing up, and he always had blackberry gumdrops for me in his shirt pocket whenever I came to visit. He also lived in East Germany until the wall fell. So however, he made it to the US for 11 months to Nebraska of all places was a mystery to me. Padigeri was clicked to clear this up for me. Though highly critical of Hitler's regime, Uncle Kurt was drafted as soon as World War II started and stationed in Italy. There, he was captured by American soldiers and brought to the US as a prisoner of war. He was sent to, a lab to labor on a farm in Nebraska. Now, by the time I found out about this, he had already died, so I never got to hear his recollection of that time. But according to Tante Gerdi, he remembered this time quite fondly. Yes, the work on the farm was hard, but the meals were hearty and plentiful. The beds in the barracks where he and the other German prisoners slept were warm and comfortable. And the farmer's family on whose farm they worked was friendly and welcoming. They had evenings and Sundays off and during his free time, Uncle Kurt took drawing classes where he created pictures of exotic animals and birds. This was in stark contrast to the other relatives who were prisoners of war. My Uncle Max, for example, was sent to France where the German soldiers were not even given houses, having to live in cold, wet trenches until they build some raggedy huts themselves. Now, don't get me wrong. I know what Germany did in the war. I understand that the French were not at all inclined to, inclined to make the lives of prisoners of war comfortable in any way. I understand that. But for that very reason, I was even more surprised to hear how well my uncle Kurt was treated. In fact, Tante Gerdi, mother of an infant in East Berlin, tried her hardest after the war to save enough of their small daily provisions to send care packages with some chocolate, some tobacco to her husband, until he wrote back to her that this was not necessary at all. Not only did they have chocolate and tobacco on the farm, but the quality of either was also much better. I was surprised and I was grateful because I loved my uncle Kurt very much and because he was never a supporter of Hitler and his regime, but instead found himself drafted into a war he never wanted. In fact, Uncle Kurt's story made me love the US, this country I myself had moved to at a young age even more. 
Interestingly, though, the few people here to whom I told this story were just as confused as me. They had never heard about German prisoners of war in the US. It made me wonder if my uncle's story was an isolated case, a rare occurrence. But that notion is actually far from the truth. A couple of years ago, while listening to Radiolab, one of my favorite podcasts, Jed Abumrad and Robert Krolvich, the hosts of the show back then, shone some light on this story in an episode entitled Nazi Summer Camp. Apparently, towards the end of World War II, there were almost half a million prisoners of war in the US, mostly German, but also some Japanese and some Italian soldiers. They were located in every single state except for Vermont, sometimes housed in tent cities or churches or high school gyms and even rodeo grounds until more suitable accommodations could be built. There were over 200 base camps, some of them housing up to 8,000 prisoners. And life in these camps was not bad. People had plenty of food. In fact, they were given so much food that in some cases they could not even finish it all. Though hard work was required, the prisoners were also treated well. And during times off, there was even entertainment. Prisoners were given musical instruments. They formed orchestras. There were pottery classes, or in the case of my uncle Cord, drawing classes. Of course, not everybody was happy with that. There were people in the population and in the media who were quite enraged about this from the very start. They were enraged about the cushy life enemy soldiers who were killing the sons of American families in the war abroad were provided with. After all, the war took a toll on America as well. But despite growing criticism, the US government held on to their treatment of, enemies, of enemy prisoners of war. The Geneva Conventions had just been signed a little over 10 years before, stating that prisoners of war should be given the same rations and treatments as the soldiers of one's own military. The US abided by these conventions, determined that there should not be a repeat of the gruesomeness of World War I. But of course, we now know that World War I's gruesomeness was to be overshadowed. We know that Germany did not abide by any laws and conventions. This became clear when US soldiers discovered German prisoner of war camps for American soldiers who were treated cruelly, violently, and who were even killed, massacred after surrender that Germany did not follow any laws or conventions became even more clear when the concentration camps were discovered. At this point, resources in the US were becoming scarce. Also, in the camps hosting German soldiers, the relative freedom allowed the convinced Nazis, those who were not simply drafted, but who followed Hitler willingly and enthusiastically to organize themselves, perpetuate their ideologies and bully prisoners like my uncle Kurt who did not share their convictions. 
all of this led to a renewed debate about how many of the scarce resources should be spent on such deplorable people. Should you be fair and humane to those who showed such a disregard for humanity? When push came to shove, there was a vote in Congress and Congress voted to keep upholding the Geneva Conventions, to keep treating the German prisoners decently. Not only did they say that they didn't want to sing to the same level of Nazis, they didn't even want to use Nazis as a standard or a measurement. They decided to stick to their own standards, their own American ideals. And because of that, mein uncle Kurt with his blackberry gumdrops and his mineral collection did not have to suffer. And after some time, he returned safely home to his wife and his infant daughter. When my own young daughter asks me, what parts of America do I love? This is one of the stories that I tell her. I do think the choice to keep prisoners in humane circumstances, to treat them well, was a choice well made. I don't think it was an easy choice. Upholding one's ideals is often not. Choosing to hold on to one's goodness when, safe, when faced with such evil is not easy. But I think it was right. And it fills me with gratitude. But of course, we also know that during that time, not only good choices were made, because these camps were not the only camps. They were also internment camps where over 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry, the majority of them American citizens, were housed after they were yanked out of their lives simply because their background made them seem like a threat. And the conditions in these camps, sparsely erected wooden buildings that did not keep out the cold, the wind, sometimes even the rain, where up to 25 people were crammed into rooms designed for four, where there was often no plumbing, these conditions were bad. Food was scarce and of low quality, lives were destroyed and harm was done. The ruptures in families and the psychological damage that was done carried forth into the next generations as well. And the harm that was done in these camps was done to civilians, mothers and fathers and children, grandfathers and grandmothers, people like you and me, people who did not fire at American sons on the battlefield, and who did not commit genocide. And of course, all of this also happened long before the civil rights movement, when segregation was still rampant in many parts of the US, including the military. I'm so grateful that my uncle Kurt was treated so kindly. And also, the US treated Nazi soldiers better than many of its own citizens. Both of this is true. It is undeniable that race, that racism played a part in this. What this shows is something that also became quite apparent again in recent years, that in many parts of America, 
a white life counts more than the life of a person of color, even if the white life is a Nazi soldier or sympathizer. Holding the hard truth is also an act of love. It's also an act of patriotism. Now in the podcast that I mentioned, the hosts also bring up racism, but in addition, they quote Paul Springer, a military historian who raises another reason, not one to replace racism as an explanation for this grave and unjust discrepancy in treatment, but to add to it. He says that one of the main differences was that there were clear rules governing international law, like the Geneva Conventions, when it came to the treatment of prisoners of war. The same was not true for American citizens. In fact, even Japanese soldiers who became prisoners of war were treated far better than the American civilians of Japanese ancestry in the internment camps. For them, there were no clear rules. They were in a weird gray zone outside of the law. I say that this explanation is in addition to that of racism because I think the two go hand in hand. Within systemic racism, having rules applied to you, laws work in your favor is not a basic right, but a privilege that not everyone enjoys. We have seen this time and time again. We have seen this when after 9-11, the Bush administration announced that people suspected of sympathizing with Al-Qaeda were terrorists, not prisoners of war, and therefore the Geneva Conventions did not apply, leading to the infamous camps of Guantanamo Bay. To this day, seven, to this day out of the 780 prisoners who were taken to Guantanamo Bay, 37 detainees still remain at the camp. They have been held there for nearly two decades without a trial. And we have also seen this when the Trump administration decided that the rights usually guaranteed to asylum seekers do not apply at the southern border, separating children from their parents, holding people in dehumanizing and cruel conditions, and making a mockery of legal procedure when three-year-old children were asked to make a case in front of immigration judges. We have seen this when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882, a law severely restricting immigration to the US, the first law to suddenly do so for one specific group after centuries of Europeans freely and legally entering the US to start new lives here. We see this every time the police violates people of color especially black people, employing measures of drastic and even fatal violence for minor infractions or for even just existing with often little to no legal consequences for the officers. And of course, we see this in Frederick Douglass's moving and profound speech in which she makes the point that the ideals and values of the Declaration of Independence with its grand opening promise that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, that all people are created equal does not in fact leave any room for enslavement of human beings. 
Douglas here does not attack the Declaration of Independence or the values it espouses. What he decries and condemns, though, is the fact that, it guarantee, that its guarantees are not equally applied to every person in the US. He says, in that instrument, the Declaration of Independence, I hold there is neither warrant, license, nor sanction of the hateful thing. But interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble, consider its purposes. Is slavery among them? Is it a gateway? Or is it in the temple? It is neither. Douglas does not take issue with the American ideals, but with the inconsistencies of their application. And it is these inconsistencies precisely that have and still do create systems of oppression and of structural racism. What I love about this country is that there are ideals and laws and promises that allowed for my uncle court an enemy soldier to be treated decently and fairly. What breaks my heart and fills me not just with despair and anger, but also the urgent need to work for change is the fact that the very same ideals, laws and promises are not fulfilled in the same way for black indigenous and people of color in the US. On the 4th of July, we celebrate American independence and what it promises. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Maybe for some of you, these sentences and what they imply are part of what you love about the US. I also think they are good rules to live by as a country. These sentences are, good, are a good underlying foundation for all other laws and rules we may come up with. And maybe it is now time Maybe the act of patriotism, of love for our country that is so direly needed is to stop viewing these sentences as just the ideals that the country was founded on and that we might aspire to, but as binding rights and promising promises and a resulting duty for all of us, for all Americans to make sure that they are applied equally and consistently to all. May it be so, and blessed be. <laughs>